The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. There were a few requests to hear about conceit. So, <laughs> tonight's talk is about conceit. Um, and if you might recall from the last talk, conceit is one of the defilements. <clears throat> Uh, and the defilements are mental conditions that cloud the mind. <clears throat> mental conditions that cloud the mind. So um, these are the Buddha's words. He says, "What is the fetter of conceit? Conceit at the thought I am the better one. Conceit at the thought I am as good as they." Conceit at the thought, I am lowly. All such sort of conceit, overweening conceitedness, loftiness, haughtiness, flaunting a flag, assumption, desire of the heart for self-advertisement. This is called conceit. So the Buddha said that conceit manifests as vain fancy or vainglory and is an obstruction to progress. Its approximate cause is greed, and it's built on the judging mind and is a form of craving to become. And it's one of the last defilements to leave us. And the Buddha said, it should be regarded as madness. So the English word conceit, you know, serves partly well. Um, uh, In English, it has several meanings, one of which is the same as the word mana in Pali, um, which is self-aggrandizement or self-inflation. In English, it also has the meaning of a foolish notion that one is attached to. Um, So like, I've heard that there are people that believe the world is flat now. Maybe there's sort of a cult thing with that. So that might be considered like a conceit, a foolish notion that one is attached to. Um, And mana, um, uh, which we're translating as conceit, but the Pali word also includes self-condemnation and ideas of inferiority as a kind of conceit. So, mana translates directly as measuring, the word measuring, the mind of delusion in which mental processes impose a sense of permanence and sense of separate uh, and separateness to our experience. There is a fabrication of an I which occurs mostly in comparison with other individuals and other groups of people, but also in comparison to ourselves. There's self-preoccupation and a sense of this is me and everything out there is other. So I want to talk about the three ways that they manifest and the three ways that we can begin to practice sort of uncovering conceit, watching conceit. So um, there are three ways, superior mana, inferior mana, and equality mana. And I'll just 
go briefly into each. So superior mana is basically pride. It's one's, uh, one sees one's self above others, whether it's one's attainments, abilities, physical attributes, economic status, whatever it is, we have an idea that we are in some way better than another. And we tend to like this, right? We tend, this is one of those feelings we feed, one of those mind states we feed. <clears throat> inferior mana, there is an evaluation of oneself as being inferior to another in some attribute or another. One feels less than, and this tends to be painful and is associated with unpleasant feeling. And then the most interesting is equality mana, a notion that in some measure one is equal to another. And this is a perception we tend not to notice so much. But it's still based on a delusion of separation and permanence. And then Buddha said again, One who thinks oneself equal to others, or superior, or inferior, for that very reason makes argument. But one who is unmoved under those three conditions, for that person the notions equal, superior, and inferior do not exist. For one who is free from views, there are no ties. For one who is delivered by understanding, there are no follies. But those who grasp after views and philosophical opinions, they wander about in the world, annoying people. (laughs) The Buddha said that when we see the mind and body clearly, there is no possibility of conceit. There is no solid, enduring I behind the process of me, my body, my mind. Our thoughts don't belong to us. Our bodies don't belong to us. I met a Mei Chi when I was in Thailand. <coughs> Mei Chi Kun was her name. A Mei Chi is um, uh, a woman devoted to the the Buddhist path, um, and it's somewhere between a layperson and a nun. They don't really have a full ordination in Thailand, but um, but so she was a an eight eight preceptor laywoman and um, really respected for her practice. and And I met her with a small group of women, and her first words to us was, <clears throat> "Your eyes don't belong to you." And she was blind or almost blind and um, 90 years old. Those were her first words. Your eyes don't belong to you. And I think I'll depart and just talk to you a little bit about Mei Chi Kun, just because it was very powerful meeting her. <clears throat> she was a student of Ajahn Mun, and maybe some of you have heard of Ajahn Mun, who uh, is a remarkable forerunner in our tradition and an influence to Mark and me and comes into this room even, um, a really powerful figure. He died in 1949. But she was his student when she was a girl, and, um, and he recognized the power of her mind, even though she couldn't ordain, she couldn't come to the monastery. 
and he told her, your, your karma is to marry, but one day you'll devote yourself completely to the Dhamma. And he gave her a razor blade for when that day would happen, and she would shave her head and, and ordain. And, and, um, and those things happened. She got married, and she had 12 children, and she married a man who was devoted to the Dhamma. And they practiced together, and she raised her children. And the story goes that, well, she told the story through a translator, <laughs> that, um, that the day after her husband died, she shaved her head, she took her eight precepts, and she uh, packed up to live in seclusion, to renounce. Um, and nobody approved. It was so close to his death. But, you know, she just did that. She picked up and went and lived in a mountain cave for the next 20 years. And I met her at 90 when she had just come out a few years ago. And she's really, um, she made me think of Mark. She can't stop talking about the Dharma. <laughs> she, she's so, <laughs> and and we, actually, we actually had the opportunity to go up up the mountain to, uh, you know, in a, what are those all-terrain vehicles, and then we had to walk part of the way, and and I could just see, the, she showed us the, well, she didn't show us because she can't walk that well now, but she showed us the cave where she lived, just like in the side of a mountain, it was like two boulders just sort of coming together, making an enclave, and it was like at the tops of the trees, it was way up, I couldn't even see how she could be getting in and out and but it was just it was just moving to me you know a woman living in a cave till she's 85 years old you know it kind of upends any idea of like little old, little old lady you know like what's that <laughs> so it really it really uh left me with a lot of aspiration and um and and just kind of upended assumptions about well how you know what's normal you know what i mean like making making these radical, <laughs> what feels radical, but maybe it's not so radical in her mind or in that community, but, and to aim for the, to aim for that liberation, really, that meant a lot. The Buddha said, <clears throat> in whatever way we conceive of self, the fact is ever other than that. <clears throat> so another translation for mana is comparing mind. And so we can ask, well, what are we comparing? And I think it's useful just to even reflect in our own minds, like even today, how many comparisons happen today, right? About everything, about your shirt, about someone else's shirt, about, you know, someone's posture, your posture, and even even comparing yourself to who you think you should be, that's a comparing mind, or comparing yourself to who you used to be, that's a comparing mind. So this is sort of a constant affair, right? It's a constant eye-making affair, a subtle eye-making affair that we do. And it can be humbling to take a look at that, but it's also a relief to begin to take a look at that. <clears throat>
So our minds are built to categorize, but we may not notice this particular way of categorizing where there's grasping. So I just made a list. Clothes, physical features, athleticism, age, beauty, personality, education, wealth, abilities, uh, abilities um, writing, speaking, practicing. You know, and to go back to the meaning measure, <laughs> how do we stack up, right? Even if it's not like a verbal thing, isn't that always a feeling? Like how do we stack up in this situation, you know? And this is a contraction based in delusion. And, and Steve Armstrong said once in a talk, the delusion of permanence pervades pride. The delusion of permanence pervades pride. So I think that these perceptions based on measuring these comparisons that we make, they may be light, they may be in passing, and then others carry more weight. Others are heavy, others we chew and suffer, especially with, you know, we dig in, the mind spins as we try to feel ourselves distinguished. And the contraction can also occur as one identifies as a member of a group, a family, a country, a gender, a race, an age, or a religion. So when I first heard these teachings, I practiced a lot with them because they felt like such a relief. They felt like such a relief to notice this happening. And then notice, like, if you do this as a practice, then notice what happens in the next moment. Notice what happens in the next moment and in the next moment, because that's equally important, not just to see that it happens, but what is the, what does it set in motion? And notice feelings of pleasant that might arise, feelings of inflation, feelings of shrinkage, you know, like, kind of just see what gets set in motion with this particular habit of mind. So there's this other important term called papancha, which translates as conceptual proliferation. Um, It also means expansion and profusion, and it's a specific kind of thinking that obscures clear seeing. It refers to a habit of proliferating with ever-expanding language and concepts around an experience. Pancha gets its energy from being tied up with emotion. And the image is like of a cat chasing its tail. And a whole lot is happening, but nothing is happening, you know. And so with Papancha, we can erect fictions in our mind that are far removed from our direct experience. And literally this term has some meaning, obstacle in front of the feet, a burden and impediment. 
And the Buddha said, conceit is a papancha. Conceit is a papancha. I, I'll tell an example of a papancha. Um, <clears throat> uh, some years back, many years back, uh, I was at a artist dance dance residency at the Black Lock Na- Nature Sanctuary in Moose Lake, Minnesota. And um, during a rehearsal, I was just kind of noticing, uh, uh, just it felt like I couldn't take a full breath. That's all it was. It was just kind of like, what's wrong? I just can't take a full breath, you know? And I was just kind of like paying attention to my breathing. And, and I asked one of the dancers, you know, I just said, I'm just having a little, just, yeah, I just can't get a full breath today. And she said, yeah, I've, I've noticed you've been breathing a little funny. And I said, have you? And, and yeah. And I, oh, I've been breathing funny, right? So this is like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, and so just through the rest of the rehearsal, I'm just kind of watching my breath. And, you know, and it just kind of left me with a little concern, not nothing big, but I thought I'll call the nurse line just to put my mind at ease. Right? And I, I just called the nurse line and just sort of described what was happening. She said, you know, this might surprise you, but I want you to call an ambulance immediately and get to the hospital. I was like, really? And she said, really, don't question it, just, you know, I said, well, I can just drive myself. No, call an ambulance and get to the hospital. And I said, okay, but I hung up the phone. I said, I'm not going to call an ambulance. I just said, you know, but I will, maybe I'll go to the hospital, whatever. I had a dancer, two dancers get in the car with me and we're, we're headed out to the hospital. But, but as I was in the car, just kind of leaning against the window and watching my breath and I, I, and I started to just like feel like maybe something's really wrong and I should have taken the, I should have taken the ambulance. <laughs> and, then, and then it was like, it was just growing and my mind was spinning and it was, a, it was an internal scene. It was a real scene for me. And, um, and I got to the hospital, the doctor checked everything. He said, you know, you're just here having a, a little panic attack. That's, that's, that's all that's happening. And so it's like that whole thing, you know, just, just based, in, and the, the fear that was sort of tied up in it, propelling it, you know. So that was like such a lesson about what the mind can do. I think Mark was saying that, like, we have to stop scaring ourselves, you know. So conceit is a papancha. Mark Twain says, some of the worst things in my life never happened. (laughs) (laughs) I want to read a passage from Ajahn Sumedho, uh, another important senior teacher from the Thai forest tradition. Um, And in this passage, he's reflecting on times when... um, He'd have to give Dhamma talks in Thai, and he wasn't really comfortable in the language and all this stuff. And, and he says, uh, Long Por Cha, or this is Ajahn Chah, <clears throat> who was his teacher, Ajahn Chah would always encourage me uh, to keep aware of the pride, <clears throat> the conceit, the embarrassment, and the self-consciousness that I would feel. And fortunately in Thailand, the people are such that they're just grateful for a monk giving a talk. Even if it's not a very good talk, it doesn't seem to upset them very much. They still seem quite grateful about it, so that made it quite easy. One time at a katina ceremony, this is an alms ceremony, 
uh, where we had to sit up all night, Ajahn Chah said, Sumedho, you have to give a talk for three hours tonight. And up until that time, I'd only talk for half an hour. And that was a strain, three hours. <laughs> and he knew with Ajahn Chah, I always felt that if he said something, I'd do it. So I sat up there on the high seat and talked for three hours. And I had to sit there and watch people get up and leave. And I had to sit there and watch people just lie down on the floor and sleep. <laughs> and at the end of the three hours, there were still a few polite old ladies sitting up there. <clears throat> <laughs> that wasn't Ajahn Chah saying, okay, Sumedho, go in there and bowl them over with some scintillating stuff, entertain them, really sock it to them. I began to realize that what he wanted me to do was to be able to look at this self-consciousness, the posing, the pride, the conceit, the grumbling, the lazy, the not wanting to be bothered, the wanting to please, the wanting to entertain, the wanting to get approval. All these have come up during these talks of the past 15 years. But the meditation is one in which more and more one feels a real understanding of the suffering of a self-view. And then through that insight, one realizes the abiding and emptiness. And so sometimes I notice, you know, and just in noticing a moment of conceit, and I can recognize the little small harming of it, like to myself, especially, like I, I, I get it, I feel it, and maybe to that other person too, you know, because those things are on some subtle level are felt, you know, and then, and then sort of, and then just the, just the noticing, there just can be that softening and like opening and... I don't know, I just call it like the mysterious yield, just like something that just relaxes. Um, So I think it's a really powerful place to notice. So we talked about Mara last time. Um, Mara, the personification of forces antagonistic to enlightenment. And in its uh, etymology, its root word means causing death or killing. And there are ten armies of Mara, ten armies of ignorance. And conceit has to do with the eighth, ninth, and tenth. So three of the armies have to do with conceit. And the first one is self-condemnation, feeling worthlessness. This is the eighth army. The ninth army is desire for gain, reverence, and fame. The tenth army is self-importance, putting others down. And I'll just talk a little bit about each of these armies. The first one being self-condemnation and a feeling of worthlessness or feeling less than. So what comes to my mind is just an experience you know, I well, and we all know this, right? We all know this, but I'll just detail a, an example. Um, last year uh, in the fall, I was teaching for the first time a, an academic course in the classroom. Um, it was a lecture-based course, and it was on a topic I knew next knew like next to nothing about, and I was teaching it 
with my colleague and superior, who I've always really regarded as brilliant. You know, she, she has that kind of mind. That's, she's really erudite. She's really nimble. And this is, this was, she's an expert in this field. She's an author of two books in this kind of content that we were dealing with. And, and, um, and so there was a lot of shrinkage. Like I just, there was fear and identification and I'm not comfortable giving lectures and I'm not comfortable giving lectures on things I don't know anything about. And it's going to be a crash course. And, you know, so right away, just the sort of the alarm bells and, you know, managing through my practice and, you know, whatever. But during our first meeting together to, to kind of design the course and, and she's, she's just sort of musing and she's saying, well, you know, I think we don't want to, we don't want to overload them with theory. You know, let's just do theory for the first two weeks. And I'm like, not in yeah, theory. It's like, what is theory? You know, <laughs> and she says, and then, you know, we can get into the avant-garde. Why don't you take the avant-garde and dance, maybe trace it back to the turn of the century. And, and I'm like, I'm, I'm nodding, yeah, I'm smiling, yeah, you know, not smiling, but I'm sort of like there. And, but really, it's like, um, what is the avant-garde in dance, and which century is she talking about? <laughs> it's like, this is, the, this is the level of sort of having no idea. And, and because she was my boss, because she could fire me, you know, like I, I was really, was, I didn't feel like I could just, you know, be real with her. I was really defended. And there was a lot of suffering in this course and a lot of, you know, I would, like Ajahn Sumedho with that, like I would have to stand next to her as she would just take the room. I mean, she was so charismatic and like, and then, you know, and then I'd speak and it was like, half the students sort of felt sorry. I mean, they kind of like, (laughs) others I could just tell were just like, forget this lady, you know, and it it was just sort of like holding that, you know, and I could just, I could just know my intention, I'm doing my best, I could just stay in my body, I could know conceit was operating, but it still, it was a lot of identification, a lot of suffering, and a lot of powerful learning, you know, just to be in that fire, just to really be in that fire. And then I got the course evaluations, right? I, I saved them. I said, I'm going to wait six months. <laughs> and I knew they would be, I knew what they would be, you know? Um, and so I took out my mindfulness belt, right? And it's like, and I do this anyway with course evaluations, just because it's like, it's like, that's where we need to just, you know, we need to bring our mindfulness with us in these places that are hot. And, uh, and, um, yeah, and just kind of watching the circus of my mind. I took it like a sit. I sat in my posture, watching my mind, and I'm just like, you know, doing that thing. And um, yeah, and I'll, and I'll just give an example. Like, I think this is illustrative. Like, wh- one of the evaluations was particularly brutal. Um, the, the student just... <laughs> just circle, they didn't even do individual, just pour, <laughs> pour, the whole page just pour, and then wrote incompetent, right, at the base of it. So it was really, it was really brutal, and, you know, and there were others less bad, but that was, that was like one. And, um, and so, just kind of watching my mind. So this is, this is the ways we can respond to unpleasantness. So I'm just using this as an example. So we can have a reaction to these powerfully unpleasant feelings 
and not even necessarily see it as a reaction. And so it takes several forms. So one is to ignore it, right? So it's like, just breeze through that, pay attention, you know, just push that paper aside. I'm not even going to go there. So that would be like ignoring it. One is we start to think about it and spin the events into a story that's more comfortable, that places us in a more favorable light or places blame on someone else for our feeling. And that's what I did. I, I knew which student that was. <laughs> that student had, you know, some chip on the show. You know, that's what my mind did, right? But even if that was true, that wasn't the skillful response. That wasn't the skillful. The skillful response is to really receive how that hit me. Like really let the gut feel that. That would have been the thing to do. Um, and then the third thing we do is we start strategizing in the mind so that we never have to feel this feeling in the future. Mm-hmm. And maybe we become a workaholic or we determine never to teach again or we become an alcoholic. <laughs> so if we don't recognize this resistance, this reactivity, this whole drama in the mind, it will congeal into a sense of self, moment by moment. So the ninth army is desire for gain, reverence, and fame. So as human beings, we often act out of a need to distinguish ourselves over others and to feel special in the sense of more special than others. And this is what the Buddha had to say about it. He said, <clears throat> a fatal thing, practitioner, practitioners, are gains, favors, and fame, a bitter, harsh impediment to the attainment of the unsurpassed freedom from bondage. It is just like a beetle feeding on dung, full of dung, gorged with dung, standing before a great dung hill, <laughs> who might despise other beetles saying, I am a dung eater. <laughs> Full of dung, gorged with dung, and before me is this great dung hill. He had such a sense of humor. <laughs> so I think I think it's useful to keep in mind the eight worldly winds here, you know, these unavoidable conditions of being human, right? Praise and blame, fame, disrepute, gain, loss pleasure, pain. So Mark talked about them last night, and, and I really appreciated this vision of the tree of equanimity that can kind of stand in the middle of the winds, but, but be solid, you know, be unshakable with these winds, these eight worldly winds. But I think our first strategy is usually not to develop equanimity, and usually not to explore conceit. Our strategy is really only to ever try to feel the winds on the left column, praise, fame, gain, pleasure, and avoid at all costs, blame, disrepute, loss, and pain. That's mostly what we do, I think. <laughs> That's mostly what I do. Um, because we're afraid of the feelings that come with blame, or with disrepute, or with loss, or with pain. And we exhaust ourselves, avoiding them, trying to control things. And our life gets very small in trying to control things and trying to avoid things. 
I remember Upandita saying, tiny mind. That was his word, tiny mind. <clears throat> Ajahn Sumedho compares this wanting only, only the pleasurable side, only the praise, fame, gain, and pleasure. He describes that it's like only wanting the inhale in life. We go through life determined only to inhale, and each time we exhale, we beat ourselves up and we're disappointed and you know we rage against life. And and that is a kind of madness. <clears throat> so the delusion of conceit makes us believe that praise, fame, gain, and pleasure will nourish us in some permanent sense, and it will comfort us in a meaningful way. <clears throat> And although these experiences are unreliable, we still buy into striving after them, mostly because we don't know what else to do. Eventually we get exhausted and we let go a little bit. We get some ease and we begin to see a new way. Then we feel confident, then we feel superior to people, and again we find ourselves right back in the eight winds, right? And this happens again and again and again. It's deeply restless, this need to feel special. So I think, I think it's important that we have gentleness and humor when we see this in our own actions and in our own minds. And find ways to calm the heart, you know. I really, I really make a study of this, um, like, like how, how can I soothe my heart now? You know, and at night, I've talked about Bear, our cat, you know, he doesn't like to sleep with us or anything, um, but, you know, he sleeps it on his little bear, his post, his perch in another room. But at night, sometimes, and when he's sleeping, I'll just pick up the whole perch and I'll bring it into the bedroom, right next to my bed. You know, he tolerates me. <laughs> and I'll just, I'll just... I'll just put my hand, you know, just on his fur and just feel his breath and just let myself just be comforted by that, you know. It's just a small thing, but but I, you know, I like it. And I and my my meditation shawl, you know, I use it for my winter scarf. I take it to my office, I put it on my chair. It reminds me of my intention. I keep it with me through the day. And it also reminds me of this <clears throat> From my Zen days, this beautiful chant, um, <clears throat> great robe of liberation, a formless field of merit, merit, wrapping ourselves in Buddha's teachings, I vow to save all beings. And I remember just practicing, you know, in our, in our robes in Zen, a great robe of liberation, a formless field of merit, you know. <clears throat> Adrian Ross is a teacher at Spirit Rock. <clears throat> um, and she says, in the yearning for specialness, we are wanting to return to wholeness. We feel there is something missing. It is a homing device. We're just pointed, pointing it in the wrong direction. Mara's 10th army is self-importance and putting others down, superior mana. So in this mana, we have self-glorifying thoughts and difficulty receiving feedback. 
We believe our ideas are superior and we're identified with the power that comes with our confidence. We don't notice the attachment to the pleasant feelings of better than. And from the Sadama Foundation, I saw this description. A prominent aspect of this conceit is stiffness and rigidity. One's mind feels stiff and bloated, like a python that has just swallowed some other creature. This aspect of mana is also reflected as tension in the body and posture. Its victims get big-headed and stiff-necked, and thus may find it difficult to bow respectfully to others. So sometimes Mark and I are in the 10th Army together (laughs) at the same time, (laughs) where we're both superior, and we both have an idea that our idea is right, and he is fully deluded. (laughs) And it's, it's easy to laugh about it, but in the tangle, it's painful. We know, right? We know. Early in our marriage, we, we gave names to ourselves, primitive eight people names, Klug and Rorg. Those were our names that we would... And we'd wrestle, you know what I mean? Just just diffuse the energy, poke holes, just poke holes in this intractable way of feeling and being, you know, this self-righteousness. It's so intractable, it's so difficult, you know? We're so convinced. So when we're in this place, feeling superior, we don't listen well. We're involved with our own thoughts. We don't have the humility to learn from others. It's the same mind that thinks it already knows the breath. There's nothing more to see. And I just, taking this opportunity to read this passage um, by Norman Fisher, Zen Abbott, this passage really has impacted me, and I'll just read it for you. He says, uh, to truly listen is to shed as much as possible all of your protective mechanisms, at least for the time of listening. To listen is to be willing to simply be present with what you hear without trying to figure it out or control it. To listen is to be receptive. To do that, you have to be honest with yourself. You have to be aware of and accepting of your preconceptions, desires, and delusions, all that prevent you from listening. But you also have to be willing to put these preconceptions, desires, and delusions aside so that you can hear what the speaker is saying for what it is, because truly listening requires that you do this. (laughs) Listening is dangerous. It might cause you to hear something you don't like to consider its validity and to think something you never thought before or to feel something you never felt before and perhaps never wanted to feel. This feeling might make something happen within you that never happened before. This is the risk of listening. But listening, however dangerous, is a necessity. If you want to stay open to life and to change, you have to listen. To listen is to accord respect. 
When your mind is occupied, usually unconsciously, with your own thoughts, plans, strategies, and defenses, you are not listening. And when you are not listening, you are not according respect. The speaker knows this and reacts accordingly. That really brought for me the the mind of when I'm listening to people, but I'm really not when I'm engaged, like I have another concern, or I'm sort of like doing the the face of listening, but I'm, I'm not quite there, and how often that that happens. And I think what was powerful to me is that on some level, the speaker does get that. That's what gets communicated more than my words. We, we operate at this energetic level underneath that the words might be one thing, our actions, our eyes might be one thing, but really what's going on in the heart? Am I really here? Am I really listening? And if I'm not, the speaker knows on some level. I believe that. <clears throat> so, this brings me to humility, the opposite, or the absence of conceit, I guess. The absence of conceit. Um, the root word of humility is hummus, meaning earth. Mm. And there's that phrase like down to earth. When I think of down to earth, you know, it's like we're close to what's real. We're not spent, spun out in mental constructions. And I think of earth as like stable and trustworthy, a resting place. So I really like this word hummus, and I like that it's connection to humility. And it's different, of course, than humiliation where, you know, our sense of self gets a blow to itself, you know, in humiliation. But I think we shouldn't be afraid of humiliation because when we treat that humiliation with, with kindness and wisdom, you know, we're on our way down to earth. Because I think we can avoid a lot because we're afraid of being humiliated. So like really just not fearing humiliation, you know, nowhere... nowhere out but through. <laughs> you know, it's part of our learning. And I think um, we move toward humility when we have an intimate awareness of death and impermanence. <clears throat> In my house, I have an obituary of my uh, great-grandfather that's just posted on the wall, and um, his name was John Henry Fricky. and he was born in Illinois in 1854. And it's just a very matter-of-fact short paragraph, but it says, you know, it says when he was born, he said, in such and such a time he married his first wife, and they had three children, three of whom died in infancy, and then his wife died a year later. And then he married, da-da-da-da, and they had two children, both of whom died in infancy, and then his wife died two years later. And then he married my great-grandmother, Mary Buning. And um, my dad used to talk about what a piece of work she was. She was a difficult person. But John Henry had sort of, in my dad's perception, 
just had a lot of gratitude toward her and patience and sort of enduring kindness, sort of no matter what. My dad used to like to tell that story because I think, I think his grandmother was a piece of work to him and he kind of marveled at how his grandfather sort of held her or met her. And I think, well, what must it have been like to go through the death of five babies and two wives and like that does something to the heart and maybe what's left is gratitude, you know, like sometimes I think that's maybe what that was about. But I like that story too and I, I you know, because I, I realize like sometimes I'm the difficult person, sometimes we're all the difficult person and isn't it, you know, isn't it beautiful when someone can meet us with that kind regard? You know, I just have this like little thing like, what would happen if the world loved up Trump? You know, <laughs> like not approved, but loved him up. <laughs> what would happen? I want to just offer one more seed, and this came from. I was at a retreat with Steve Armstrong just recently, and I was in an interview with him and. And he just said something I just want to share about conceit. Um, He said, comparing mind masks emptiness. Comparing mind masks emptiness. And he said, watch for comparing mind even in one moment to another moment. Even comparing one moment to another moment. Watch for comparing mind. And he said, and then forget I said it. Forget I said it. Just plant that seed. So I'll plant it for all of us whatever it means. (laughs) I'll end with um, this short uh, paragraph by André Comte Sponville, who was a philosopher, or is, I think he's still living. And I changed the pronouns from he to she. I hope that's okay with him, (laughs) with all of you. Um, So he writes... The simple person lives the way she breathes, with no more effort or glory, with no more affectation, and without shame. Simplicity is freedom, buoyancy, transparency, as simple as the air, as free as the air. The simple person does not take herself too seriously or too tragically. She goes on her way, her heart light, her soul at peace, without a goal, without nostalgia, without impatience. The world is her kingdom, and it suffices her. The present is her eternity, and delights her. She has nothing to prove, since she has no appearances to keep up, and nothing to seek, since everything is before her. What is more simple than simplicity? What lighter? It is the virtue of wise women and men and the wisdom of saints. I still have a story, but maybe another day. <laughs> <laughs> you want to hear it? Yeah. You want to hear it? All right. Okay. <laughs> So this is sort of more on the topic from the other night, but it, it just fits into every category. Um, maybe uh, 
Sue Cochran is a community member. Maybe many of you know her. She's been in the community for a long time. And uh, she's been dealing with cancer for a long time. And um, stage 4 cancer. So she has a terminal diagnosis and she's been really working creatively with it. And this is from her, her blog. <clears throat> um, and it's, it's called uh, Kintsugi, the Golden Joinery of Love. An ancient Japanese art shows how to heal a broken life. And so this is her, this is her story. Um, she says, um, <clears throat> I was surprised and honored to be invited as a keynote speaker last month in Atlanta for an innovative national healthcare organization. A few years ago, my brother introduced me to his friend, <clears throat> the CEO of this company, via email. He is a remarkable leader and writer who follows my cancer journey with kindness and support. We agreed I would focus part of the talk on the terminal cancer diagnosis and how I stay positive, even joyful, despite this challenge. I knew the team was young, and I wanted at the very least to be interesting and, if possible, inspirational. I knew it was not going to be easy to simmer my life's journey and message into one hour. I had also just learned the cancer had advanced beyond my brain and bones into the liver and lungs. I sincerely was walking the walk and not just talking the talk, as they say in AA. At one point, after several weeks, I found myself fretfully pawing through 50 pages of notes, books, and several outlines spread over my desk, chair, and floor, but still I had no theme. I have learned when this happens while writing, I need to set it all aside and take a break for a day or even longer. Then I start fresh on a blank page with an open mind. I did that here. I began by creating a list of books that helped me live a good and happy life, something I've wanted to do ever since I got the terminal diagnosis to give to my three sons. Next, I gathered together all my favorite quotes and poems. <clears throat> which I've been collecting for years. I did not write a single word of the talk that day, but I noticed two recurring themes in my favorite works, overcoming tragedies and unconditional love. It was then, surrounded by my beloved books, quotes, and poems, that I received the answer on how to put the pieces of the talk together. Something a friend told me in passing months earlier came to mind. She had mentioned an ancient Japanese method of repairing broken porcelain that uses gold to fill the cracks. I remember loving that idea immediately, more than Leonard Cohen's famous lyric, there is a crack in everything and that is where the light comes in. For some reason, when I pictured being cracked up inside, I tended to feel a harsh wind coming through, not the light. This method of restoring breakage with gold is called kintsugi, and translates as golden joinery. I did some quick research and discovered that kintsugi is an outgrowth of the Japanese philosophy of wabi-sabi, which honors the beauty of imperfections. The kintsugi artisan uses gold or other precious metals mixed with epoxy to repair the broken piece. This method emphasizes rather than hides the breakage. The repaired piece is often considered even more beautiful than the original. Kintsugi embraces the breakage as part of the object's history, instead of something unacceptable to be hidden or thrown away. 
This is the opposite of what I was taught. I learned that I was supposed to be perfect and that I must hide any imperfections. This belief is embedded in our culture. If something is broken, toss it out. If something is flawed, hide it. Kintsugi was the perfect metaphor for my talk on how I was able to find healing in a life that a long time was not only cracked, but broken apart, and in a few places shattered beyond recognition. When I, was a when I was suffering as a child in a home filled with violence, alcoholism, and poverty, my maternal grandmother would take care of me and my younger brother almost every weekend. I remember rushing in to hug her ample body, always in a faded small print dress, her cheeks red from baking, gardening, making soap, and canning. My grandparents created a small farm in their inner city backyard Whatever else they needed, our grandfather built by hand. They raised four children during the Great Depression through their hard work and faith in Jesus. Every night we would say the rosary and every morning we went to mass. Afterwards, I could swing under the grape arbor for hours, sit at the oak table in her kitchen, eating fresh apple pie and watching her cook. We did not say much, but I basked in the warmth of her loving presence during those frightening times of my life. My, my grandmother healed me with her unconditional love. In my early 20s, with my grandparents and parents dead, I turned to alcohol to block out the pain. I constantly wished that my childhood had been a different one, that I had been born into a different family with different circumstances. I resented spending most of my time trying to recover from the damage. It was hard work trying to fix myself, and to be honest, that never really worked anyway. Learning about Kintsugi helped me look back and realize that my greatest wish was to be unbroken pottery instead of who I was. That caused me so much suffering because it was impossible. When I finally had the courage to show those broken edges to others, to my brother, to dear friends in AA, in counseling and in safe communities. I received acceptance and was loved and respected just the way I was, in the same way my grandmother did. My broken parts were transformed into what students of Kintsugi call precious scars, which honored my whole life, leaving nothing out. There are many ways to find quick healing beyond uh, I'm sorry, there are many ways to find healing beyond what I share here. It can be a painstaking practice. Mine was not quick or easy, and it is still ongoing, like the skill and care required to do kintsugi <coughs> restoration. Through it all, I keep coming back to love as the answer, the golden repair that has lasted. I found that I needed to find unconditional love for myself too, and not just seek that from others. Then I found that I could begin to love others, others whole beings without judgment. I believe this helped me to be a far better parent, friend, and family member, and it changed the course of my professional life. Best of all, others who are on difficult healing journeys seem to find inspiration when they see my extensive golden scars, and for that I am grateful. I no longer think of my broken parts as wounds. They are part of my history. 
and who I've become. As an ancient, <coughs> excuse me, ancient Kintsugi quote says, uh, the true life of the bowl began the moment it was dropped. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.